Well, good morning, Cross Connection. If you're watching this in the morning, I hope you are, uh, bright and early on a Sunday. Great to be with you. Uh, I'm Pastor Mark. Pastor Miles has asked if I would sit in and teach and kind of wrap up the last book of Esther, chapter 10. And uh, I know, I'm sure it's the same with you, but I know for myself, uh, it's been a great time just going through 10 chapters with Pastor Jason and Pastor Miles. Um, just being able to teach through those things and learn some of the important lessons that we learned from the book of Esther. And it's an incredible story. And uh, so today what I'm going to do is, is we're going to, um, in our wrap up, we're going to uh, take some of the high points of uh, everything that we've learned and I think some of the most important themes uh, out of the book of Esther that not only are important to the story of God's people, but are important to the story of God's people today. And so I'm excited about sharing and wrapping up on this very last chapter of Esther. Uh, we're also going to be doing communion today, Lord's Supper. And so if you want to just pause everything for a minute to go get the uh, elements, maybe a little grape juice and a cracker or a tortilla and whatever you have, uh, get ready because we're going to be doing communion at the uh, end of the message. Um, so with that, uh, let's start right in on Esther chapter 10 and read along with me. It says, And King Asaharis imposed tribute on the land and on the islands of the sea. Now all the acts of his power and his might, and the account of the greatness of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second to King Asaharis, and was great among the Jews, and well received by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the good of his people, and speaking peace to all his countrymen. That's it. That's the wrap-up of everything. Well, we're going to go a little bit farther than that. And before we do that, let's, let's pray together. Uh, Father, thank you so much for this book. Thank you for this time, uh, Lord. Thank you that this was written down and uh, not omitted or hidden from our sight, Lord, and the valuable lessons that uh, we've learned and will continue to learn, Lord, through the book of Esther. And what happens when you start a story. You tell a story, Lord, and you allow us to be part of it. And so, uh, Father, uh, if we're convinced of one thing uh, after we've read and studied your word this morning, may we be convinced of the need to step into the story that you're writing uh, right now in our lives and the lives of others and of our country and of the church, Lord. And so bless our time in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, this is kind of the victory lap here. It, it sums up everything that's happened. And basically, um, we've gone from the Jews are all going to suffer certain death, and there's all these weird circumstances and this horrible person named Haman, to now we're taking this victory lap, and the, the victim has become the victor, so to speak, and uh, the wisdom and uh, the patience and God's relationship, or excuse me, Mordecai's relationship with God has triumphed, and it's a happy story. So how did we get here? And the answer is, is the way that this story got there and the way that we had this ending to the story for us all to read is nothing can be explained except that it's supernatural, that it is God working behind the scenes, doing something more than what our next step would be, something we couldn't fathom, something we couldn't see. And God is doing this supernatural work. And the, the supernatural is a, it's an interesting thing. We are in a church and I'm very thankful that we teach the word of God intelligently. Um, we teach it thoroughly and we teach it as it's written. And so, um, 
as you get to read and to know and to work through the Word of God, it starts to all make sense to you. And it's very easy in those instances sometimes to forget the supernatural. It becomes such a part of our lives to forget the supernatural hand of God in these circumstances, in these events, both in the Bible, but also in our own lives. And so uh, the way that this happened was by no other than the supernatural hand of God. Let's look at some of these supernatural events we see, these events that God orchestrated that would seem like a coincidence uh, that came together. We have first, the queen is fired over a trivial thing. Vashti is fired, basically. And they decide to replace her instead of just picking somebody out, actually having this kind of beauty or talent competition through all the land. Esther's entered, we'll say, in this competition. And Esther supernaturally has favor. She has been actually groomed for this position. She has favored with both everybody in the king's house and then on that big day at the tryout, um, she is selected by the king as the new queen, supernaturally. Um, we have that Esther wins this competition. Um, Mordecai, not too long after that, overhears about a death plot, a, a assassination to uh, kill the king. He overhears, he's in the right place at the right time, and he, he just overhears about this plot, and he reports it to Esther. And, uh, it is foiled, and the king's loyalty towards Mordecai and the king's loyalty towards um, Esther is not forgotten later on. And so there's the supernatural occurrence there. Um, the decree of death that is made by Haman as the initiator of this was to be carried out in the decree by private citizens rather than the king's army. That alone is a miracle because trying to retract this uh, this decree of death for the Jewish people, uh, 11 months out, they're given notice, uh, would have been impossible to retract that with the king's army. But with the private citizens, there were things that were being able to be undone. Uh, there was ways to combat that that we will see later on. Um, let's see, Haman's anger in chapter 5 was restrained against Mordecai. He just didn't come up and kill him, but for some reason it was restrained supernaturally. Um, Esther decides to have two banquets and not just spring the surprise on the king about Haman's evil deeds. And so the timing is perfect because it's God's timing. Um, then at just the right time, Haman's anger is unleashed and he builds a gallows. And the night before, there was a sleepless night for the king. Coincidentally, he couldn't sleep. And so to be put to sleep, uh, he had the royal book brought out and found that he had lacked in his rewarding Mordecai. And so he decides to uh, re uh, reward Mordecai for this great act of loyalty uh, in foiling the assassination attempt. And then came in after building the gallows at the right day and the right time falls out of favor in the meeting at the banquet with the king. And as the king leaves the room in rage, for some reason, unbeknownst to us, I think it was God, Haman falls on the couch uh, in front of Esther, onto Esther's couch, and seemingly to do something that, well, the king's second in command should not do or think about. The king catches him in the act, and immediately, without any negotiation or word, has Mordecai, or excuse me, has Haman removed, and it just so happens that one of the servants, who probably wasn't a big fan of Haman, tells the king about a gallows that had been built, and it was used for its ultimate use.
These are not just mere happenings or accidents. These are supernatural part of the story that God has laid out. Trials, and this is a trial. This is a very real trial. It's not an imagined trial for the Jewish people. Trial are God's way of including us in his story. We go through many things, uh, death of a loved one, um, divorce, betrayal, uh, bankruptcy, sickness, all those things we encounter. And it's all something God has allowed in our lives. Many of these things we have even started ourselves, but God's allowed these things in our lives. And for the Christian, he's allowed it in our lives for us to be part of a story, part of a story that comes out as showing our trust, faith, God's power, God's glory, and God's ultimately redemption for us. And so he gives us this choice to be part of a story. Esther had a choice. She didn't have to be involved in the story. She could have blown her people off. She was the queen. She could have got away with it. So could Mordecai. He could have taken a different route. But they chose to be part of this story, part of an obedience and a love and a relationship uh, to God. And so that's why we're reading this story today. I recently had the privilege, I just came back, and if you'll notice, I'm pretty tan, and I, I had the privilege of being on an eight-day offshore fishing trip, long range, and uh, it is so good for us, uh, of those of us in the church, uh, especially as pastors, uh, to be sequestered or locked away someplace with unbelievers. Uh, we forget spending so much time at the church and so much time with Christians uh, walking the walk and talking the talk that when we actually get out into the world, the world that God sent his son to save and to redeem, um, it can blow us away. We can forget. And one of the things I saw on the boat is as it, usually I don't tell people that I'm a pastor, but sooner or later it comes out because that's part of what men do. They want to know what you do for a living and it comes out. And I had so many questions and there's always a great deal of ministry that gets done on the boat. I've led people to the Lord uh, answered their questions, um, prayed for numerous people, have relationships that still continue from years gone by that are people I've met on the boat and I've become to help disciple or answer their questions, kind of be their pastor away from home, so to speak. And this trip was no different. And one of the things that struck me is people wanted to talk about God and they had questions is that people, as they're struggling with this question of God, uh, they all have a but, and everybody has this but, and it is, I really, you know, I'm okay with Christianity, but there's this one thing that seems to hold them back. And sorry to say, sometimes I even see Christians with a but that holds them back. Um, they have this issue with the word or with God that they just can't get past. Now, with the unsaved, so many times I've seen is that God didn't meet their expectation in a certain situation or a certain problem, a certain trial. A loved one that they cried out to the Lord to, uh, to save didn't get saved or uh, a problem or an issue that just finally brought them almost to the point of their knees or maybe to their knees. They didn't get the answer that they were looking for. Somehow God did not fulfill uh, what their idea of what God should do. And that has kept more people away from the Lord. Sort of speak, they're making a God in their own image. Uh, they're trying to get God to adhere to their ideas of what God's about um, 
who God should be, how he should act, when he should be angry, when he should be loving. Uh, why does this happen and why does that happen? So God isn't meeting their expectation. And uh, it's kind of a silly conversation to have when you're thinking about, you're addressing, and you're talking about the God of the universe. In the book of Job, and it's right next to uh, Esther, and so uh, chapter 1, book of Job, um, this is a really hard story. Um, the devil has been ev evidently canvassing the earth, looking around, and uh, says, there's no righteous men, Lord, and, and he is having a conversation with God, and God says, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan's reaction is to say, well, you've done everything for Job. He has uh, children and a wife, and he has servants, and he has numerous cattle. He's rich. He has health. He has everything. Why would Job ever uh, think the less of you? Uh, he says, but if you took that away from him, he would curse you. And so God, supernaturally, in the presence of heaven, in a place that we don't know what's going on and how it's going on, and this whole other world that we can't grasp yet, says, go ahead. Go ahead and take it all away. And so in chapter 13, or excuse me, in verse 13 of chapter 1, this is what happened with Job. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. When the Sabaeans uh, raided them and took them away, indeed they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came in and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Chaldeans formed three bands and raided the camels and took them away. Yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in your oldest brother's house, and suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground, and he worshipped. I'd like to say that would be my immediate reaction. Um, Job was a very godly man. Job was a man who, when he would get up in the morning, would offer sacrifices, even for his children, uh, just in case they were to sin that day. And so a deeply, deeply devout man who loved God. And now this, I, I can't imagine a day like this when you lose your family, all your money, your servants who are part of your household all in one day. And it is so catastrophic, so cataclysmic that you no other than the hand of God could have allowed this on one day. And what is Job's immediate response? is to shave his head and to fall down the ground on the ground in repentance and to worship God. See, Job was going to be part, not only part of the story, Job was going to be the story. Um, he lost his wealth, his servants. Ultimately, 
uh, Job would lose his health. He would be in a miserable condition, laying in the dust uh, with sores and things like that. Um, he had friends uh, that would come and talk to him and uh, tell him it had to have been something that he had done and accuse Job of so many things and speak so much to Job or of Job, of God, and how Job had to be wrong and Job had to have done something bad. So the uh, accusations of friends. And then finally, uh, Job's wife uh, comes to him and looks at him and instead of being an encourager, uh, looks at him and tells him to just curse God and die. Yet it is said through all this, Job did not curse God. Job's faith was in the right place. Job's trust was in the right place. Job's hope was in the right place. The real trial that God was involving in at the time, he didn't know that he was the story. He only knew that he was part of the story. Now, the good news is, if we go to... Uh, Job 42, please read along with me there, we see the restoration of Job. Job 42. It says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, so God had been speaking to him, I know that you can do everything, and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, Who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, and you shall answer me. I have heard you, excuse me, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. And so it was after the Lord had spoken those words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job. Now, therefore, take yourselves seven bulls and seven rams, go to my servant Job, and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering, and my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept him, lest I deal with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right. Later on, we see that in uh, verse 10, it says, And the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then all his brothers and all his sisters and all those who had been his acquaintances before came to him and ate food with him in the house and consoled him and comforted him. And for all the adversity that the Lord had brought about upon him, each one gave him a piece of silver and each a ring of gold. Now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than the beginning, for he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters, and he called the name of the first Jemimiah, the second Kenziah, and the name of the third Karen's Hapak. In the land were found no women so beautiful as the daughters of Job, and their father gave them as an inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his children and grandchildren for four generations. So, so Job died old and full of days. Wow. Job chose to be part of the story, even when he didn't know that he was the story. And he did this in faith and he did this in obedience. 
I see the times that we're living in now, and it would be very easy to get discouraged by the things we see in media and social media, uh, TV, all these different places. Some of the things that we hear coming out of people's mouths just seem foolish and so counter to God. But I believe this. I believe as we are in a place of confusion, uh, that we are in a place of um, division, and as we see uh, the times and seasons, and we know that God works in times and seasons, we see this time in the season, we're in a time when people are afraid, people are wondering, people need answers. Uh, when I look at a church that went from 500 plus on a Sunday to about 250 on a Sunday, I know that those empty seats are being emptied for a reason. I know that God is uh, refining the church. And I also know that God has made room for what I believe is going to be a time of hope, a time of restoration. You know that at Cross Connection Church, one of our primary core values is that we have an optimistic view of the future. We believe that as Christ is coming back, that we have an optimism that he is coming back. And in the meantime, he will continue to work with his church and use his church to bring many into salvation, to bring many into the glory and the kingdom of God. And so as I look out at a church now that is, we would say, half full or half empty, depending on your view, I know that God is going to do something. And I believe that uh, it's time for us as a um, fellowship of believers to know that we'll be rolling up our sleeves and uh, we're going to be going to work here in this season that is coming up. One of the things um, that you'll see in your, your outline there in a, a point that I believe that is really, really important that we take out of the story is that God also, one of the things that, that Esther teaches us, that God intends to keep his covenant promise even when his people do not. That's a hard saying. That takes a lot of, lot, of, lot of faith because there are times when we look in the media and we look in the news and we look around and it seems like God is losing, but we know that he's not. I mean, what is a loss? When we look through the book of Esther, it seemed like God was losing for a while. God's people were losing for a while, but we certainly found out something different. Our Savior being on a cross uh, going to the cross. For a moment there, it was looking like God was losing. But that's the difference between an eternal outlook or uh, outlook that we have that's temporal, that's temporary, that's worldly. What sometimes makes us think that God is losing is no other than the devil distracting us and discouraging us. So God keeps his covenant promise even when his people do not. The book of Hosea is a very interesting uh, kind of a hard yet fun book to read. It, it can bring up feelings in people. And uh, there's a covenant that uh, God has made with his people. And so God has brought them into a promised land and they have promptly begun to uh, worship idols, um, worship other gods, yet they're still going to, to sacrifice to him like nothing's going on. So they're trying to cover all their bases with all these gods. And so they're still sacrificing to Jehovah God, but they're also uh, worshiping and sacrificing to these other gods, gods that God hates. And so uh, they're displeasing to the Lord. 
They're also trusting in their political alliances. They've trusted in their pact and their cooperation with the Egyptians and the Assyrians. And so they've done that. And so God needs to get their attention. And so poor Hosea, Hosea becomes the story. He becomes not only part of it, but he becomes the story on the way that God is going to illustrate his love for his people, but also his displeasure for the people. And he tries to uh, reiterate uh, that when they're disobedient, they have bad consequences. And when they are obedient, they have good consequences. And so he tells the prophet Hosea to go out and marry somebody named Gomer. And she is a well-known prostitute. And for a man of God at the time, a prophet, a person who's been set aside and been pure, uh, to be asked to go marry this prostitute, that was a difficult thing. That was a step. And I can imagine Hosea, are, are you sure that's the one, Lord? Are you sure? And uh, no doubt. I mean, I can't imagine the conversation with his mom. Can you imagine that conversation? So he goes out and he has this, he has a wedding. He gets married um, just like it was anybody else. And he goes and he gets married to this prostitute. And it's public. People know about it. It's the talk of the town. And so the priest, so to speak, is marrying a hooker. And it, it's this, it, people are having a hard time getting their head around it. And so it's going to be very public uh, for all to see. They end up having three children. And so we know that in the relationship there was intimacy and, and care. And uh, the children are the product of this uh, intimacy. But non, not too long after, uh, she leaves and she runs off after other men very publicly. And it is embarrassing. And if you've ever been in a relationship and felt betrayal, either being dumped or being, uh, you know, exchanged for somebody else, uh, the hurt and the feeling that can follow you from years like that. Some people can never let go of that. And here Hosea is dealing with this. It's very sad. And God is using it to demonstrate a very important and a very public lesson to his people. He then goes tells Hosea to go and to redeem her to go to the men that she is with and to go and pay off her debt and to redeem her, to bring her back and to forgive her and to love her. Does that sound a little bit familiar? It's a total sneak peek of what Jesus was going to do for us on the cross. And so he, he does this act, and I'm sure the people thought he was crazy as he does this, and then he announces it and shows that this is what God feels like. And so he lays this on all the people. The only time you and I have the ability to really make a covenant um, is with God and another in marriage. We have a, a marriage covenant. And I believe God has given us the marriage covenant uh, as a way to work out our relationship with him. Uh, many people think the goal of marriage is happiness, but it's actually holiness. Uh, we learn more about uh, being a husband or a wife, uh, God, uh, and one another's imperfections uh, than we do anywhere else, any other institution. Uh, the people that are the closest to you are going to irritate you, betray you, disappoint you, 
more than anybody else many times because you feel it deeper and there's trust there. Uh, marriages are very public. Marriages are intimate, or at least they should be. Um, we deal with disappointment. Sometimes we deal with betrayal. The one thing that you learn uh, in marriage, uh, they say if you want to have patience, have children, but if you want to learn forgiveness, get married. The one thing we learn uh, that draws us closer to the Lord and in his example in a, of our relationship with Jesus Christ is forgiveness. And one of the hardest things sometimes we have to do is to forgive our spouses when they're wrong and we know they're wrong. And one of the things, if any of you couples out there have been in my office, one of the things I tell people all the time, one of the first things I tell them is that when you're trying to restore a relationship, there needs to be forgiveness. And sometimes that forgiveness needs to come from the person that thinks they've been wrong the most. But there's the example of Jesus. And the example of Jesus is, is that Jesus went first. So before you and I accepted him and asked for forgiveness and apologized and tried to walk the walk, so to speak, he preemptively went there. He went there first. And so in a marriage relationship, we see that uh, part of restoration and in, in all that is that somebody has to go first. Somebody has to take that first step. We learn in marriage that unity is the result of two people moving closer to God and then moving closer to one another at the same time. God loves unity. Psalm 133, behold how good and how pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity. Unity is something we are lacking right now um, in this country. Um, it is something that uh, I believe was uh, lacking in the church lately. Yeah, I remember um, reading about World War II or having parents that went through World War II. Um, there was unity because when trials and tribulation come upon a people group, um, you're all in to defend yourself from this entity. So there was a great deal of unity as far as what the common goal was. Um, later, and I was alive for this, was 9-11. Watching um, after those towers fell and the media coverage and um, people praying for one another, taking care of one another, um, the outpouring of love and the, how the division just went down because we had a greater problem and a bigger problem. Watching how people helped one another out through floods and hurricanes and, and just natural disasters. Uh, you see unity there because we have a common goal as a person and as a people group. Sadly, 2020 was a very challenging year and 2020 is continuing to be. And the division is through COVID and politics, um, division in the church. And the only thing I can account it to is we never had an enemy to fight against. There was all this division back and forth. And we, we had this enemy, but our enemy was a, a faceless enemy. We didn't stop to think that behind the arguments of mask and no mask and vaccines and no vaccines and uh, shutdowns and no shutdowns and all those things and the political races and all those things, we didn't stop to think for a moment, some of us, that behind all this was an enemy, but it was a faceless enemy. 
It wasn't somebody that we chose to identify. It is said that one of the greatest uh, tricks of the devil is that he's convinced us that he does not exist. And as we move closer, closer through the year, I believe as we continue to reunite as a church, uh, I believe that we will start to reunite in unity. Uh, in Acts chapter 2, one of the things we see is that God, excuse me, Jesus promises the disciples to go into Jerusalem and to wait on a comforter, to go and to wait on the Holy Spirit. And as they're waiting, it says they're all in agreement. They're in one place and they're in, of one accord. And many Bible commentators will tell you that perhaps that was the first gift of the Spirit, the first fruit of the Spirit there, so to speak, is that they were in agreement, that there was unity. Well, thankfully, God intends to keep his covenant. And we have a new covenant. And that covenant came from no other from, than from Jesus. And that covenant is something that we're going to celebrate. Um, and we're going to celebrate that in a communion, a uh, time of communion, a time of unity. Because if it's one thing that's going to bring us together as a church and as a nation, it will be taking the time to sit together with one common purpose and one common goal, and that is to honor God. So as you pull out your elements here, this new covenant is described, it's not through the blood of animals or through the blood of sacrifices or even us necessarily even being perfectly in tune with what uh, God would have us do, but it has to do with the blood of Christ. It has to do with Jesus. And there was a quiet night a night with his disciples. It was a time of probably fear, uh, anxiety. Um, these group of men were um, going to be criminals soon. Uh, there were already people already trying to kill them and to do harm to them. And so they were there with our Lord and Savior Jesus, and he gives them this. He says in Matthew 26, and as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then, at that same table, at the same time, he held up a cup wine, most likely. And he said, then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Dear Father, Thank you so much for the act, the tradition um, of communion. And Lord, as we look at the lessons that we've learned in the book of Esther, Lord, um, lessons of faithfulness and selflessness and bravery, uh, Lord, um, faith and hope and love, Lord, uh, 
how the faith of a few uh, saved the great nation of Israel, Lord, and saved their people. Father, I'd ask we take those lessons into our own hearts. And as we look at our nation and we look at our people, Lord, uh, that we would be brave, that we would be faithful, Lord, that we'd be loving and that we would be kind and that we would be seen, Lord, your church, not as a place of division or accusation, Lord, but, Lord, um, we'd be seen as a place of hope, Lord, and optimism, Lord, and ultimately a place of salvation. And it is in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. God bless you, and Pastor Miles will be with you next week. Adios.